Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Ginny Cubitz-Moyer about her debut novel, The Seeing Garden. On the surface, Catherine Ogden, heroine of The Seeing Garden, is a young woman who has everything. Looks, health, riches, and a handsome and determined suitor. The main part of her story begins in New York City in 1910, and it would be difficult to imagine how, given her many assets, she might encounter the kind of problems and soul-searching that draw readers into a novel. Let me assure you that she does. But we do get a hint from the prologue that Catherine's life has not always been so smooth. Gloucester, Massachusetts, 1899. On a sunny Tuesday, three weeks after Catherine Ogden's father died, she and her mother left their apartment and walked five long blocks to the Church of Our Lady of Good Voyage. The sounds of streetcars and seagulls faded as they entered the dark hush of the building, Catherine's small hand held tightly in Anne's. It was an hour after morning mass, and the church was empty, except for a few visitors who had come for silent prayer. A young man with the dusty clothes of a mason entered a middle pew, pausing to genuflect and cross himself. A woman in a wide feather-trimmed hat stood at the shrine to St. Jude's, her lips moving in silent prayer, her hands resting on her abdomen. The Ogdens rarely went to church, so being in the large echoing space was a novelty to Catherine. She gazed for a long time at the statue of St. Patrick with his ornate gold and green robes, such a contrast to the nearly naked Jesus on the cross behind the altar. Her nose prickled with the smell of leftover incense. She heard the clink of a coin in the poor box and the muted boom of a kneeler lowered somewhere behind her. But her favorite spot was the bank of candles at the foot of the Mary statue. As Anne knelt in the very last pew, forehead resting against her clasped hands, Catherine twisted her braid around her finger and studied the flames. Each one had its own personality. Some were quiet and steady, some trembled and then righted themselves, others moved wildly around as if desperate to escape the wick. At eight years old, Catherine knew fire wasn't alive. Her father had told her so just a month before he died. But deep down, she was not entirely convinced. Her mother touched her shoulder. It's time to go. And now, please join me in welcoming Jenny Cubitz-Moyer. Hello, Jenny. Thank you for talking with me today. Oh, hi, Carolyn. Thank you so much for having me. Start, please, by telling us something about your background and how you came to write fiction. Absolutely. Um, well, I, I came to writing fiction pretty late in life, actually, um, even though I've been a, a lifelong avid reader, as probably many of your listeners are. Um, I've been a high school English teacher for 26 years, and I've done other kinds of writing, um, specifically spiritual writing. But um, around 2016, actually, the idea of writing a novel um, based in this particular setting of the San Francisco Peninsula, uh, it just kind of wouldn't leave me alone. And so, um, again, about seven years ago or so, I sat down to write it 
and um, really didn't know how to write a novel when I started. <laughs> uh, I was literally buying books like, how do you write a plot? Um, and anyhow, it was, it was a, a wonderful process. It was an absorbing process. And um, yeah, it just really came out of this, I guess, this need to tell this story um, and this desire to explore the setting of this time period more fully. So that's interesting to me because some people start, I start with an image often um, of a main character, but I do know some people who start with setting. Are you one of the people who starts with setting? For this book, yes. Um, I've written two other novels since, and I guess each one has started a little bit differently, but for this one, it was definitely the setting was the catalyst. Um, a little more background, too. I, I am a native Californian. I, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is where I currently live. And the setting that inspired me was a place on the peninsula south of the city called uh, Filoli, the Filoli Estate in Woodside, California. And what it is, is it's a, a really beautiful Georgian revival home that was built in 1917, completed in 1917. And it's surrounded by these beautiful acres of formal gardens. And the first time that I ever visited Filoli, I was just amazed because I had grown up in the area. And if you're familiar with the Bay Area, particularly um, Silicon Valley, you know, Silicon Valley is sort of a fluid term, but uh, where I grew up with Silicon Valley, it was, you know, very new and you know, developed mostly in the 50s, 60s. And so to see this place that looked like something out of, you know, one of those English novels that I love to read, you know, like The Secret Garden or Rebecca or something, this country house with these amazing gardens, I just couldn't believe that there was a place like that near where I had grown up. And so that first visit in my 20s just kind of planted the seed, I guess you could say, but it wasn't until really my late 30s that I started to um, come back to it, research it more, and, and realized that actually in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the San Francisco Peninsula was full of these gorgeous country estates. Um, it was There were dozens of them, and it was very much the place where you built a country home if you were a wealthy San Franciscan. They had these homes in the city, of course, but if, you, uh, if you're familiar with San Francisco, you know that um, summers in San Francisco are not the nicest weather-wise. And uh, there's a, a, the Bay Area microclimates are, are very real. And so if you go a couple miles south, you have much better weather. And so that was really a draw for a lot of these wealthy San Franciscans um, around the turn of the last century to build these amazing estates. And they, it was a chance for them to kind of be the kind of like the English landed gentry in a way. And so that setting, I, I started thinking about, okay, what would, you know, what kind of world would that be in 1910? Um, who would live in these estates? What would their lives be like? And it just really went from there. And how did you discover Catherine Ogden, your heroine in particular? So I was, again, I started with the setting and I was thinking about, okay, who would live there? And I have a fondness for coming of age stories. Um, Catherine is 19 in the novel. I have a fondness for stories about uh, young adults, I think, because, and, and we can get into this more, but I think it's so much that's a point in your life where you are facing so many choices and decisions. And so I knew that she would be around 19. And I started, I, I really kind of figured out who she was by sitting down and writing scenes. Uh, I have a, a book of writing prompts and 
you know, they're not directed towards historical fiction or, or anything really, but, you know, things like write about a sunset. So I would sit down and write about a sunset with this sort of vague character in mind. And she and the other characters and the plot to a large extent revealed themselves to me that way, which was very exciting. It became clear to me early on too, that she needed to be from somewhere other than California originally, because I, feel, I, I knew that this world of the peninsula estates was one that most readers probably wouldn't know. I mean, you know, I'm a native Bayarian and I didn't know about it growing up, right? I didn't know that this Downton Abbey type world had once existed here. And so I kind of knew that I wanted her to be from somewhere else coming and discovering it for the first time along with the reader. And um, my husband is a native New Yorker from upstate New York and we go back every summer. And so it just made sense, I think, to have her come from the East, particularly given how different the landscapes are. Um, and Catherine, in the book, she first comes to Oakview, which is the, the fictional state, in the spring where everything is green. Um, she comes back in the summer where things, the hills are brown, because we just really don't have rain in the summer in California, you know, from essentially April to October. Um, we really don't have any measurable rainfall, um, unless there's some oddity. I don't know, this whole year has been kind of a weather oddity <laughs> in the Bay Area here. But, uh, you know, I really wanted to have her discover the difference. Um, uh, California was a very different and new and exciting place for her. Yes, that's one of the things I remember about the Bay Area is, you know, in February, it would be astonishing. All the flowers that bloom over the course of three or four months here on the East Coast would bloom all at once, you know, and then everything would dry out. <laughs> and all that would be left were these brown hills with these little bushes here and there, which had roots deep enough to go in. So it's really a, a, a stark contrast. It, it is. Yeah. In fact, um, you know, we go back east and I'm just always, as many years as I've been going back there in the summer, I'm always just it strikes me as so amazing that there's there's rain in the summer <laughs> and everything is green in the summer and it's just so beautiful uh, and so very different again from from what I grew up with. So we're going to get back to Catherine again in a moment, but uh, you yourself are an avid gardener and that clearly informs the novel. Um, tell us a bit about that element of it. Sure, uh, I, I definitely grew up. Well, I'm a gardener because of my mother and my grandmothers who were. Uh, you know, my, my mother still is, my grandmothers are both passed on, but um, my mother is still very much an avid gardener. And growing up, we would be somewhere. I mean, we would be going to the grocery store and there would be flowers planted in the median strip in the parking lot and she would go over and smell them or she would say, oh, look at those beautiful cosmos or, you know, whatever they were. So I, I absorbed a lot of that from her and from my grandmothers. And I do have a garden myself, a very small suburban one here in the Bay Area. Um, nothing like the Oakview Gardens, which is probably good because I would never be able to maintain that. But I think that, um, you know, there, there's something about a garden. I, I'm always drawn to books that have garden in the title. I really am, um, probably because I love them so much. But also I think there's so much symbolism around gardens in terms of creativity and um, and life and discovery and things happening kind of beyond your own efforts. You can you can plant a garden, you can maintain a garden, but it's not all you, right? But there's some larger life force out there that is helping to make things bloom. And, you know, certain things bloom and certain things don't. And I've certainly had my 
share of uh, failed attempts in the garden, as probably every gardener has. But I think all of those ideas, I think symbolically and thematically, there was so much about the garden that just um, that just helped to illuminate Catherine's story and the journey that she goes on. When we first meet her, though, she's much younger. She's eight years old. Uh, what's happening in her life at that moment that takes her and her mother to the church? So Catherine is, um, she was raised by her mother and father in Gloucester, Massachusetts. And her father was, uh, came from a wealthy New York upper crust family, I think Edith Wharton type of world. And he ended up being disowned by his family and, and kind of by his own choice, leaving them because he fell in love with and married Catherine's mother, who uh, had been a former maid, um, who was Irish and who had also been an artist model, which is how he met her. And so three strikes against her as far as his family was concerned. So um, he left the world uh, that he grew up in to pursue a life of art uh, with her and a life very much on his own terms. And when the book opens, that scene in the church, he has died. Catherine is eight years old, um, and her father has just died. And Catherine's mother, Anne, is really left in a difficult situation because she has no money. The uh, family breadwinner um, is gone, and although she makes some money herself um, helping out with some housekeeping, she it's not enough to keep her and her daughter. So we sort of quickly find out after that first scene that what Anne has had to do is send Catherine to be raised by uh, her in-laws, whom she's had really no contact with over the years, um, again, because of the estrangement of her husband from his family. The main part of the story begins 11 years later in 1910. Um, where is Catherine by that time? What's expected of her? Yeah, so following the death of her father and then so a series of tragic circumstances, she ends up being raised by her aunt and uncle, um, essentially. Her mother is, is, is gone from her life. And so she's raised by her aunt and uncle in New York. And she has really had to learn to adapt to a world that's completely different from the one she left behind. So the first eight years of her life with her parents, who really valued art and creativity and self-expression, um, that's very much done for. She's raised by this aunt and uncle who are uh, a little bit older um, uh, much more conservative in their outlook. Um, her aunt in particular and Catherine's cousin Henry are very sort of socially aware and always wanting to um, so achieve a higher level of social prominence than they already have. So she has had to learn to do things like not like not walk barefoot around the house. Um, she's had this governess that has raised her and really taught her to be a, a, a very gracious, proper uh, young woman with an eye for making a good marriage. And so Catherine has had to adapt to that life for the last 11 years. And how would you describe her personality, both at that moment in time and in general? Sure. Um, Catherine is, she's very intelligent. And I think in, in the world of New York, upper crust society, that intelligence is valued to a point. Um, and so she's very intelligent. She Again, I think it's fair to say survivor is maybe too strong a word, but it does kind of glimpse at the fact that she did have to really adapt to an entirely different lifestyle, an entirely different set of expectations for herself and her behavior. Um, and yet that life that she knew as a child hasn't left her. And what she, I think probably her most defining trait is really a desire for creative self-expression. And she wants more than a good society marriage 
she wants to create something. She wants to leave a mark on the world, but she doesn't quite know how. Uh, her father was an artist, and she tries to draw, but she's not very good at it. She's been given many piano lessons because that was a skill that she was supposed to have as a young woman of that of the time in that um, particular social class. Um, and she enjoys piano, but you know she's not a prodigy. So she's really searching for that means of expressing herself and um, and her creativity and hasn't quite found it at the beginning of the book. She has a dear friend, Lavinia. Tell us a bit about her and what draws the two girls together. Yes, it was fun to, to write the relationship between them because, um, you know, so much of, of Catherine's life is, is living up to the expectations of other people and, you know, not wanting to make a social misstep that's going to bring on criticism of her aunt or her cousin or society. Um, but with Lavinia, she's very free and um, they're very different. Uh, Catherine is tall and dark and graceful and Lavinia is short and blonde and effervescent, but I think they, they draw the best in each other. And it is a um, it is a relationship where Catherine is able to express a lot of the, the yearnings and things that she has that she can't necessarily share openly with her family. That brings us to William Brandt. Uh, he appears as a dist- distant presence, even in Chapter 1. Who is he, and how would you characterize his attitude toward life? William Brandt is one of the most eligible bachelors in the country. He is 30 years old. He is uh, from California, from the peninsula. He has this estate, Oakview, on the peninsula, which was built by William's father. And uh, William is your sort of classic tall, dark, handsome, and extraordinarily rich. Um, his father was a railroad magnet who uh, made a fortune, passed it on to William. William has increased the fortune even more. And he is, yes, he's very much, um, even though California is sort of the Wild West, where a lot of these uh, people like uh, the New York matrons are, are concerned, he is so wealthy and so prominent. And his home is rumored to be so tasteful and so beautiful that when he comes to New York, all of the mothers are... Um, very eager to throw their daughters into his path. <laughs> and Catherine's aunt is, is uh, among that number. William pursues Catherine with a fairly single-minded obsession. Uh, we won't go into all the reasons why, because some of them don't come out until later in the book. But it's fair to say that her looks um, are, are an immediate draw. Um, she's flattered, but she's not entirely convinced. What causes her to doubt him? I think... You know, it was, it was interesting in, in, in writing this. I think he, in so many ways, picks so many of the boxes of what you want in a, in a husband um, or what a woman of that time would want. Um, again, he's, he's handsome. He's wealthy. He's um, courteous and polite. He's impeccable manners. He's well-traveled. He's interesting. Um, he represents this world that she doesn't know that she can discover through him. He values art. Um, he collects art, and so that's another bond between them because Catherine is very fond of art. Um, and yet, even though she is attracted to him physically on some level, there's some part of her that is always like, holding back a little bit. She, she, in his company, she can never entirely, completely relax, and she's confused by that. And, um, you know, I think that's a not uncommon experience in general. I mean, my, my dating years were, were, were long in the past, but, you know, I think a lot of us have had that experience of meeting somebody who 
is perfect on paper, right? And, and, and it should work, but there's something that's making us hold back and we may not even be able to name what it is. Um, and we have to figure out whether we want to listen to that and honor it or decide that it doesn't matter. And that's really where Catherine is with regards to William, even though her, her aunt and her cousin are, you know, <laughs> very much uh, touting the benefits of this match. And they're very much pro-William, um, team William. I think Catherine is, uh, is a little bit unsure. And there's another man, uh, Lavinia's cousin, George, whom she uh, likes a little bit more. It's not an uncommon reaction at 19, um, and especially given that the family is, as you say, so pro-William, um, because he he meets all their needs, and if and they, it would be unfair to them, I think, to say that it would get Catherine off their hands. But they they want the best for her, and they're they're convinced that he would be the best for her because he's wealthy and charming and all the things that you mentioned. Yes, and also I think the fact that Catherine can't quite put her reservations about him into words, um, you know, makes it easy to makes it easy for her and other people to kind of decide that they don't matter. Right. Yes, exactly. So despite her doubts, she does agree to travel west with her aunt and uncle to visit Oakview, uh, even knowing that a marriage proposal is imminent. So let's talk about her reaction to his estate when she gets there. So uh, somebody um, somebody had mentioned that her reaction is sort of like in Pride and Prejudice when Elizabeth Bennet goes to Pemberley and sees it and just is, it completely falls in love with it. And I had a lot of fun designing Oakview, honestly, because, um, you know, I sort of was captivated by it myself, <laughs> even though it's fictional. I had so much fun creating this estate. Um, and I, I, I drew on a lot of different accounts, you know, the file of the estate was sort of the primary image I had in mind, but I read about a lot of the other states that existed at the time and mixed and matched different rooms and different decorative elements and, and had a great time. So she gets to Oakview and is just um, loves it because it's the house itself is beautiful. It's um, elegant and tasteful. It's very light and spacious. And the gardens, um, but the gardens are really what capture her because it does, it's unlike anything she's ever seen before, just these walled gardens with the different sections and the different um, you know, acres of them and the reflecting pool in the garden house and the rose garden and, and everything. And it just feels, you know, she had been hungry to see new places and develop new parts of herself and her personality. And Oakview very much feels like a place where that can happen. So she's really captivated by it from the from the start. She goes back to New York, but then a month or so later, she's again in Oakview. Uh, tell us about the unplanted garden that she finds and what makes her want to influence its design. Yeah, so Oakview is you know the the gardens are are are, are large and beautiful and mostly done, but there's one section that is still being worked on, and when she sees it, she. Um, has the idea, it kind of reminds her, you know, those empty beds where nothing's been planted yet. It makes her think of a, a blank sketch pad or a blank page for a writer. And it occurs to her that this is, you know, that, that, that gardening, right, that garden design is really another kind of art all on its own. And so she gets the idea that perhaps she could help design this garden um, and that that would be an outlet for her creativity um, and inspired it harkens a little bit back to when she was a child and her father painted a garden on the wall of her room in Gloucester. And so she's 
inspired by that and the idea of maybe this is maybe this is the creative thing she can do right to, to leave her mark on the world the design itself is gorgeous. Uh, my next door neighbor is a fabulous gardener, and I thought of her plantings as I was reading about Catherine's plans. Uh, tell us a bit about the design itself, what she comes up with, and how she manages it. First of all, it's enormously colorful. She's very much she she ends up landing on the idea of putting a bunch of different colors together, almost like a stained glass window, and that is that is a little bit my own gardening aesthetic, I guess you could say. I. I I would never plant a monochromatic garden in my yard, even though I kind of admire the, the sort of elegance of that. But I, I love it when there's a bunch of different colors together and it's like an explosion of color. And so um, Catherine decides to do that. And I, I did at the time, you know, it, it helps that I live in the Bay Area and I garden. So I sort of know what, what grows here and what does well here and what would work together. I did look up a, a book from the turn of the century, uh, the turn of the last century about California gardening and just made a note of the different plants that were mentioned there because I wanted to make sure that they were you know, plants that would have been available in 1910. Um, and so it was really fun to imagine that garden um, and and to put it together. And it really is, I think, for Catherine, because it's a, a mishmash of different colors, it really is. Yeah, it, it, I, I think I wanted it to kind of get out that sense of possibility. Um, there's a kind of dynamic quality to it. And yeah, just that sense of, of not necessarily having limits, right? Um, when you're when you're allowing every color into the garden, you're not limiting yourself. You're only limited by what can grow in the sun or, you know, how, how large things can get and that sort of thing. So I really wanted it to be kind of an expression of her desire for yeah, for freedom. I think we probably told about as much of Catherine's story as we can without giving away spoilers, but there are a lot of wonderful characters in this book, and I'd love to talk about some of the others of them. Um, For example, there's the head gardener, Thomas O'Shea, uh, Vivian Powell, who's a neighbor who becomes a friend of Catherine's, uh, William's sister, Harriet, who's an important part of the story, and the artist Martin Madsen. So let's start with Thomas. Sure. So Thomas is Thomas O'Shea is the acting head gardener at Oakview. It is not his um, it's not his sort of chosen profession. He is the son of the late head gardener who passed away a couple of weeks before the story begins, or a couple of weeks before um, Catherine arrives in Oakview for the first time. And Thomas is really sticking around essentially throughout the summer to complete the work that his father started and couldn't finish before he died. So namely figuring out what to do with this empty garden. But Thomas is actually in medical school and just taking a leave, took a leave when his father was ill and stayed on to help finish his father's work. Uh, Thomas is, is a character who understands what it's like for Catherine to sort of feel like she belongs two places in a way, because his father was Irish and his mother was Mexican. And so he understands that sense of belonging to two different worlds. And so when he and Catherine get to know each other, her you know, her sense of sort of having to live in this world of social correctness and um, politeness and all of that, um, and then the memory of the much more free and creative world she had as a child, she sort of is caught between those two. And, and I think that's a bond between them because he can understand how that feels. Vivian and Harriet are contrasted, the friend and the sister, Um, but tell us what roles they play in the story and how they sort of interact uh, as personalities. 
Sure. I'll start with Harriet, um, who's William's sister, who's uh, about 15 years older than he is, um, his half-sister, actually. And she comes up from Southern California for a visit to stay. And um, she's very warm. She's very motherly. She has a son who's off traveling Europe. And um, she does, I think, represent a, a, a woman who's very comfortable and confident in California society um, and um, unfailingly pleasant not necessarily somebody who's going to be the most intellectually stimulating companion, which leads us maybe to Vivian. <laughs> um, Vivian, as you mentioned, is, um, is a friend of Catherine's um, whom she meets in California. Vivian actually grew up in California. She is a couple years younger than William and grew up with him, essentially. Vivian's father and William's father were in business together, and they were in business also with Vivian's husband, Peter, who is significantly older than she is. And I think it's fair to say that the Vivian-Peter marriage is um, definitely not, not a love match, at least not on her end. I think it is on his. But Vivian is very blunt. She's very direct. She's kind of everything that Catherine's aunt taught her a woman shouldn't be <laughs> in terms of her conversational style. And I think, I actually I think a good word for her really is frenemy, because although she and Catherine become friends, there's some little part of Catherine that can never entirely trust Vivian, um, that there's, you, you, you never quite know when Vivian is going to kind of like stick in the knife and turn it a little bit. So she was an enormously fun character to write. And actually she was one I had no idea was even going to be in the story until one of those free writing sessions I mentioned where I needed somebody for Catherine to be walking in the garden with. And Vivian just suddenly emerged um, on the page with this voice that was very strong right out of the gate. And um, I liked her a lot as a character. She was yeah, she she was she was memorable. <laughs> oh, she's a wonderful character. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm impressed that she showed up with that uh, that way because the best characters often do. They just kind of pop out of nowhere, and there they are. <laughs> like they they've just been waiting, right? They've just been waiting for you to open the door, and boom, there they are. <laughs> there they are, exactly. So Martin Manson uh, plays a role in, he, in the story in that he. Um, paints a portrait of Catherine. Uh, he also plays a crucial role that we're not going to talk about. But what was the attraction of having him uh, show up and paint the portrait? Martin was certainly plot-wise, as you mentioned, critical to the story. But I think also what he represents is at, at a time when Catherine is becoming more and more kind of drawn into the world of California high society, which, though different from New York high society, is also constricting in its own way. As she's kind of being drawn more and more into that and into William's world, Martin comes in and he represents the life that she loved as a child and the life that her father and her mother were a part of, that life of art and creativity. And Martin is somebody who is a society portrait painter of some renown in California, but that's really not where his passion is he loves to do his own kind of art right which are the cypress groves in monterey or fishermen in their boats but like like so many creatives right, he needs to pay the bills and so right doing these society portraits is is a way to do that and, and give him the ability to do his own art in the off time but i think what what i liked about martin and he was another character who who felt very strong to me right out of the gate um i, I didn't i feel like i didn't have to work too hard to kind of figure him out, his, he was very clear to me early on, is that he he comes into the world of Oakview and, and William's world, but unlike a lot of people, he's not cowed by William's 
presence and prominence and wealth. Um, he He's very much his own person. And even though William is paying the bills for this particular portrait, Martin is the artist and he knows that. And I think that gives him an ability maybe to crack open a few windows for Catherine in terms of the life that she's currently living. I realized only when I went back to prepare questions uh, how thematic the last sentence of the prologue is. Uh, Catherine's mother is speaking and she says, just remember that anything you do can be forgiven. And we won't say what people do that might have to be forgiven, but is that what you would like people to take away from the scene garden? And if not, then what? I think that's a very good message just for being human on this planet, honestly. I mean, we, we just all make mistakes, and I think we all need to forgive ourselves, too, in a lot of ways, right? It's sometimes not even about other people. It's about forgiving ourselves. So I think if people take away that message, that would be wonderful. I think when I when I think of the novel as a whole, what I really think the novel is about at its core is discernment. I think it's really about how we make decisions and choices in life. And I think it harkens back a little bit maybe to what I said earlier about coming-of-age stories, that I think when you're in your late teens, early 20s, you're faced with so many decisions in life that feel very big and very weighty. And I used to think that was only in your in your early 20s that you made your, those decisions. I'm 50 years old now, and I know that you keep making them <laughs> all throughout your life. There are times where you're at a crossroads and you're trying to decide uh, between a couple different paths. But I, I, the, I, I keep coming back to the word discernment in relation to this book because discernment to me implies that you're looking at a couple different possible paths. You can see some of them. Discernment implies that you can see some of the different paths, but you can't see everything. And I think oftentimes our, when we're trying to make a life choice, our decision is affect, our, our vision is affected by a lot of different things. It's affected by our own desires. It's affected by the desires of other people, um, the expectations of our society or our, our family or our culture. I think it can be affected by our ability to see the best path can be affected by things like fear or guilt or shame. And so the story really is about how you deal with all of that and how you sharpen your vision so that you can choose the path that's going to lead you to live most authentically. And um, that's the journey that Catherine is on in the book. And I think it's a journey that everybody is on, um, something you face at different times in your life. And if this book helps them think about that in a new way, um, that would be fabulous. This book came out in early May. Um, I was going to ask you if you were already working on something new, but you said you've written two novels since then. So could you tell us a bit about them? So my next book will be coming out. I just got the publication date for it. So it'll be coming out in August of 2024. Uh, I won't say the title because that might change, but it is also historical fiction based in California, although a different time period. So this book is going to take place in 1938, takes place in 1938. And it starts in Hollywood, in the golden age of Hollywood. Uh, the main character is a secretary for a Hollywood movie producer. And then the book ends up moving up to Napa, the Napa Valley, because my protagonist and her boss end up taking a road trip up there because they're making a movie about the life of an infamous stage actress from the late 19th century, who everybody thought was dead. Turns out she's not dead. She's alive, living in seclusion in the Napa Valley, and she does not want them to make this movie about her life. So Frances, my protagonist, and her producer boss drive up to meet this actress and try to convince her 
and uh, emotional journeys ensue for all of the characters involved. So it was it was a lot of fun to, to write this book. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Jenny. I've really enjoyed uh, talking with you and finding out more about your novel. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Jenny Cubitz Moyer about The Seeing Garden. Find out more about her at JennyMoyer.org. Like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at New Books Network. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.